An estimated 30 million people in Africa carry HIV. One physician from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, has made it his personal battle. You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Charles Vanderhorst from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Vanderhorst is a professor of medicine and associate chief in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and he's director of the AIDS Clinical Trials Unit at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He has been conducting HIV and AIDS clinical research since 1986. He has been working in Africa and South Africa, conducting clinical trials, and all importantly, enhancing the care of patients with HIV infection. Today, we're discussing HIV research in 2008. Dr. Vanderhorst, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Shira. So to begin with, tell us, how did you get involved in HIV back in the early days? Well, if you'll recall, the first cases of HIV were noticed in the 80s in the United States, in New York and Los Angeles. And I was a a resident in New York City at that time, finishing my residency in internal medicine in 82. And so I started taking care of those patients before we knew what it was. And what happened is that I chose infectious diseases because I wanted to take care of little old ladies with pneumonia who didn't die and I could make them better. Then, of course, this epidemic came was thrust upon me. And so I didn't make a decision to plunge into AIDS. AIDS came to me. So speaking of the 80s, why aren't we addressing HIV prevention today with the same passion that we did in the gay community when it was first picked up on in the early 80s? That's a great question, Shira. The CDC, for the first time, has decided to address the problem that there are more than 40,000 new Americans becoming infected with HIV each year. As well, you know that there's a large number of other sexually transmitted diseases affecting our teenagers. And one of the problems we have in the United States is we don't like to talk about sex. We have it on the TV and on the movies, but we actually don't like to talk about it in frank terms, in terms of the risk to people. So this is a big problem, and I think we're just now beginning to address it. The other problem that we have in the United States is that we don't like the idea that there might be some people who are gay or homosexual in our communities, whether we're whites or blacks. And because of that, that doesn't give a place for us to help young teens who may think they're gay from talking about it with anyone. No one wants to talk about it with them, not their parents, not their coaches, not their teachers, not their pastors or their friends. And because of that, there's no healthy way for these people to talk about it, and they may then do stupid things. Yeah, from my perspective, I agree with that. I don't think we'd like to talk about the unpleasant side of sex or the prevention and necessary side of sex. But what is being done in the schools in your area? In our area, there are in some counties, but certainly not all, there are some conversations about normal human anatomy, the risks of sexual behavior in terms of sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy. There's very little done on prevention in most of the counties, only in a few. And some counties have gone so far as actually to have school nurses in the high schools and even the middle schools, which I think is an essential component to this. So by and large, nothing is being done in most of the counties in North Carolina. Now, why? Why do you think that is? Because the religious right doesn't want it. They'd prefer to think that their kids are not having sex 
or that programs that only promote abstinence are working, in which there's clear evidence that that's not true, that their kids are having sex, they're becoming infected with various diseases, and these abstinence-only programs are not working in terms of keeping those people safe. So we have seen a lot of numbers in the the pro-life group, but what you're saying is pro-life in your communities often means abstinence, which may not be realistic, as opposed to pro-life, use birth control, use condoms, protect against sexually transmitted diseases, you know, as well as prevent pregnancy, correct? Well, uh, the problem is is that people paint it as a black and white picture, the same thing as they do with abortion. And, uh, you know, I don't think anything in life is black and white. So, for instance, in terms of talking about sex, an onset of sex, or coital debut, as the the experts talk about it, I think there's not a single person on the right or left wouldn't agree that it would be great if teens delayed when they begin sex, until they're more mature, they're able to understand the consequences of having it, etc. But instead, it becomes a black and white thing that one side says you only talk about abstinence, and the other side talks about you got to talk about condoms and things, whereas it actually has to be everything. You want to get teens to delay coital debut, as well as giving the information about how to do that, you know, how to negotiate with their partners that they don't want to have sex, or if they do decide to have sex, how to protect themselves, where to go to get an HIV test, a chlamydia test, gonorrhea, syphilis, all those things are at risk, as we know, as well as how to use a condom. You know, if you had all the power and money to influence HIV prevention, given that there is no cure, from all you've seen in these 27 years or more of research and clinical practice, how would you spend the money? How would I spend the money? Well, I think I would focus on the schools for the most part. I would teach normal human anatomy in going as low as elementary school. Elementary kids can know about penises and vaginas. They have them, so they to ignore them is silly. In middle and high school, I would start talking about behavior, and I would put in school nurses in those schools so they can help kids who are get addicted to drugs or, or become sexually active and how to protect themselves. What should physicians out there listening to this know about the research dollars available for HIV? Well, I think they need to know that the NIH budget has been shrinking in terms of research, that it is very hard, particularly for the younger people who may be interested in researching on any disease, not just HIV, but you know, hypertension, weight loss, etc., to get a grant these days than ever before, mainly because the money has been diverted to emerging infections and biodefense, as well as purchasing of vaccines for which NIH never should have been put in the business of purchasing vaccines. So I think that that's number one, that they should know about that. Number two, they need to explore who's getting elected to their school board so that these various policies can get implemented. For those of you just joining the channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I am speaking with Dr. Charles Vanderhorst, and we're discussing HIV research dollars. Tell us what PEPFAR is about and what has that done for HIV and research. Well, PEPFAR is the acronym for the President's Emergency Program for Relief of AIDS. And this was set up in the very first days of the first Bush administration. And it's designed to target 15 countries where there's a large amount of AIDS, and it provides money for treatment and prevention of HIV. And over 
1.3 million people, both uh, adults and children, are now getting therapy through this program. So it's quite extraordinary. Now, Africa. You do a lot in Africa. Why did you get involved, XUS? I had, for the first 19, 20 years of my physician life, I had been, AIDS, as I said, came to me, and I had been working in North Carolina, both doing clinical research to help define best way to treat some of the infections that HIV patients get, as well as HIV itself. And I also was involved in setting up clinics around the state so the patients didn't all have to travel to Chapel Hill for treatment. In 2000, the International AIDS Conference for the first time was in a country, a developing country, a resource-poor country in South Africa, where there was a huge epidemic of HIV, and it was just eye-opening for me. And then from there, I traveled to Malawi, where the University of North Carolina has a huge research and care operation and training operation with over 300 employees on a big campus there. And it was just an eye-opener, and I realized that at the time I was 50, a little younger than 50, and I had a skill set that I'd learned not only about doing research and treatment, but about establishing clinics and rolling out treatment around a state of 11 million people. So I decided that my time could be better spent in the next 20 years of my career by shifting operations to Africa. And so I gave up my grants in Chapel Hill to younger faculty and wrote a series of other grants and began working in Malawi and South Africa. Should more physicians get involved in programs like that at their facilities? I mean, not every institution of higher learning has an outreach facility in Africa. I imagine University of North Carolina is pretty unique in that. Well, there are a number of universities that are turning to work there, both to do research and to do care. You know, I think that, you know, particularly young physicians, they also, there's a lot to be done around the planet as well as in the United States. HIV is still a huge problem in North Carolina as as we've started the conversation. So there's lots of work to be done. But I think that one of the good things, if there is one you can say that for about Africa, is that the HIV epidemic has shown a spotlight on the continent that we previously ignored. And so we've discovered that malaria, raging tuberculosis epidemic, we've started thinking about manpower issues there, that you know they have 40% of the diseases but 1% of the doctors that you train a nurse in Malawi and she ends up in London working at a clinic. So that it's these are major issues that some of these countries are struggling with debt that they accumulated during the first oil crisis during the Carter era that they're still paying interest on. But the Bush administration appropriated funds for at least try to control the HIV epidemic in Africa, correct? Yes, and the reauthorization bill has $50 billion in it. And I think the United States has has done a good job in focusing on this issue. So I think that the PEPFAR program is quite unique in that regard. It still needs more money, and, and I think it should expand to other countries. But in terms of the benefits, it's no denying that it's done a wonderful job. How challenging, because I know it was, but how challenging was it to get an NIH grant to study HIV in Africa? The bulk of my funding comes from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Was it challenging? Well, you know, I've been doing, I'm 56, I've been doing this for a long time, so I sort of know how to write grants and 
and how to put together a team. I like to think I don't have the hubris to think I know it all. So if I don't know things about nutrition or malaria, then I call up my friends and say, hey, do you want to work on this grant with me because you're a nutritionist or a malaria expert? How would you advise a younger physician or researcher, someone who is just starting out and they wanted to get involved in HIV research? You've got years of experience. Looking back, what would you tell them? Well, I think, you know, to do research, in one hand, it's simpler than you think, and that you, you, as a physician, you look around you, you see where the gaps in knowledge are. They can be in the lab, they can be in studying the spread of a disease through a community, they could be a clinical trial of this drug versus that drug. So you look where the gap is, and then you start saying, well, I'd like to study that gap and try to narrow it so we understand better. And then you need to be trained in how to write a grant. And that's one of the things we do at the University of North Carolina and about you know five other major divisions of infectious diseases around the country that are geared to training academics. And academics doesn't mean just teaching and taking care of patients. That, patients, that goes without saying. But academics is also trying to address the problems affecting society, both here in the United States as well as globally. Dr. Vanderhorst, thank you for being my guest today. My pleasure. We've been discussing HIV clinical research. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you, as always, for listening.